Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Unapologist Podcast. Today we have the literal cherry on the cake of life, Christopher Polson. <laughs> if I'm the cherry on the cake, though, you're the full meal. Oh, no, I'm more like the breadcrumbs that fell in the oven and burnt to a crisp. <laughs> thank you, sir. But today with us, we also have another, like, just incredible, amazing guest with us. We have Dr. Natalie Miller-Reed joining us to talk about trauma-informed education. And Chris, please take over, uh, introduce us to this wonderful guest of ours. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Natalie uh, Miller-Reed. Uh, on paper, she sounds awesome. And in reality, she's even better. Uh, she's the director of the Child Trauma Research Center at the University of Regina. Uh, she explores teachers' experience of and with trauma and trauma-informed sensitivity. She's engaged in trauma, uh, trauma sensitivity, uh, sensitive pedagogies, narrative understanding of trauma, uh, mental health and connectivity in rural and remote communities, child trauma and climate change, and understanding child and youth well-being. She has taught at a number of places at the University University of Regina at King's University. She's done a ton of amazing research. And before that, she has over 10 years of experience as a high school teacher. And I am lucky enough to have shared a wall with her um, and, uh, and, and got to see her firsthand in action. And I feel as though, uh, Natalie, that a lot of the way I think people thought about your in your room back in those days I feel like I've taken that kind of chalice from you when they look in and say, what's going on in there? Anyway, welcome to the show, uh, Natalie, Dr. Natalie Miller-Reed. Welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. I was very much looking forward to this. Oh, we, so as are we, we absolutely <laughs> love just love the idea of having you on. We're so thankful you're here. So as all with all of our guests, please tell us your story. What got you into your research that you're doing, your background, your teaching? Tell us, who, who are you? <laughs> it's a long story, but it's kind of a neat one. So teaching-wise, um, I am one of those, those cliched people who always knew that they wanted to teach from kindergarten on. Uh, in grade two, my grandparents got me this cabbage patch teaching kit and I used to subject my brother to like lesson plans and, and whatnot through the summer and I would allow him to go outside for recess. And <laughs> that's uh, amazing. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> now I have to say my brother is an aerospace engineer now, so I take a little bit of credit because I think it's owed <laughs> to our summers. <laughs> I love that. Take I all love the that. It's all you. It's all you. And Chris, Cabbage Patch Kids were dolls before you were born, buddy. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah my friends, they were. Although they're back. If you go to Costco right now, they're back. Uh, and then all through elementary school, I imagined myself as a teacher and uh, decided after I read Anna Green Gables that I was going to go to Queen's. And what I didn't realize was that Anna Green Gables went to Queen's College in Charlottetown. But <laughs> lo and behold, a whole bunch of years later, I found myself at Queen's University uh, in their concurrent ed program, which was... Which and was, that's Queen's in Kingston, Ontario. Yeah. Yes. I grew up right down the road from it. I Amazing. got my master's there. It's the only university I'm letting my kids go to. 
Oh, we may have to we may have, to have some convos because <laughs> I've been to three universities now and all have all have wonderful things. But yeah, so I I knew I knew I wanted to teach in high school. I was labeled as a um, like a math kid, you know, a math science kid. But my English experiences were so horrific that I decided if I was going to teach and do something meaningful, you know, at my 17 year old self, I was going to teach English language arts. So no one had to suffer the way that I suffered in English language arts. And so I pivoted and um, decided to go that route. And I did con ed or concurrent education, sorry, at Queens. And so I was able to try out a whole bunch of stuff. So at first I thought I was going to be a grade four or five, six teacher, did a practicum there. So not. No, like thanks. not even close. Mm. No, thank you. Then I was able to do middle school, you know, French immersion, social studies, politics, <laughs> all of those kinds of things. And then uh, in my final long practicum, met the the human who became the mentor for my teaching career, really. And um, and she was an English teacher at St. Matt's in in Ottawa, in the east end of Ottawa or yeah, east end of Ottawa. So wow. that's where I started. So I uh, did my practicum and then was fortunate enough to teach at St. Matt's for, for two years um, at that point. So that's kind of my teaching story uh, in terms of my beginning. And um, from there, I went to St. FX and did my master's. And then I taught in Anaganish for three years, three and a half years. And then from there, we moved to a little rural community in Alberta called Bonneville and did some of the most meaningful teaching in some ways there um, because I'd gone from a highly academic community to an, a, a community where while we had many students graduate, not many students had plans further than graduating. And so that was a very, very meaningful teaching. And then moved to Fort McMurray and taught there. And then while we were, while I was in Fort McMurray and loved every moment, um, my partner in life was offered a job in Edmonton. And so we moved to Edmonton. I was on a maternity leave. And um, they, I started looking at schools, you know, to be employed and basically was told that with my years of education and uh, with my years of experience, I would be too expensive. And so I would have to do contracts and subbing. And I thought, isn't this funny? The, the profession where too much education and too much experience can actually work against you. There's a part of my brain that understands it, but there's also a part that I find that quite funny. So I thought, okay, well, what else am I going to do? And so I ended up applying to the University of Alberta and, and completing my PhD, which I finished a year ago. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thanks. That's Thanks. Huge. It was a labor, a labor of love. <laughs> Yes, I've heard love, that's the word. <laughs> I've heard um, some of my mentors have told me that doing a doctorate is is kind of like having another child that you take care of. I will say though, because I there are a lot of sort of pretty strong stories. Um, in some ways, it was easier at that stage in my life. We had a one year old and a three and a half year old. It was easier than teaching because I could schedule my time around. So if I needed to work from ten p.m. till midnight, I could. Right. And okay, so perfect. Yeah. It, it offered a little bit more freedom in some ways than than having gone back to teaching. And so I want to appreciate it for offering me that at that stage in our lives. That's awesome. For sure. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. As you know, Chris and I are also on the bandwagon here. I think, Chris, you're leading more towards it than I am at th this point. But 
it's definitely tilting in that direction with young kids and pursuing the academic route. It's good to get to know that you felt it was a good experience. Very much so. In that regard. Okay, amazing. Keep going. Keep going. So you got your PhD. And yeah. and so what kind of led you to that particular field? Was it uh, yeah. an advisor kind of pointed you or did you just say, you know what, this is kind of where I see a need happening? Actually, kind of neither. It's it's an interesting coincidence that's going to weave us back together again, Mr. Polson. Um, so I applied and got in um, thinking that I would do my work in terms of social justice and social justice clubs and schools and wondering with some of the tendencies I was seeing for it to shape kids really, really well, but also for it to shape kids with a little bit of arrogance. You know, I was seeing a little bit that we were shaping a type of kid who thought of themselves as I'm a social justice kid, therefore, you know, I am better than. And, and I wanted to wonder with that, right? Because that's a dangerous, that's, that's a very, very dangerous practice. So I, I started my program, everything I was doing uh, was related to that topic. And then the fires in Fort McMurray happened. And uh, when everybody was evacuated, they were evacuated down to Edmonton. We were living in Edmonton. And so our backyard became a, a space of story. Like our backyard was always open. There was food always out on the table. And, and a lot of my former colleagues, not Chris, but other ones came and sat and talked and you know, we were kind of alongside them in those first three or four weeks. And as things started coming out from the school boards, like, for example, um, the directive that schools wouldn't be reopened to, until the fall, but when they were, they would be trauma sensitive. People started asking me, like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be trauma sensitive? And, and I, I didn't know. I didn't have a good answer. And so what I started to do is I started looking, just, you know, that's <laughs> what we do, right? We're teachers, don't have an answer, going to go do some research. <laughs> so I started looking and what I started finding was a lot, a lot of toolkits and checklists and do these seven things and you will be trauma sensitive. And, and they were so far away from the experiences that I was hearing from my former colleagues that I was like, what, like, what is going on here? And how does this identity piece of being trauma sensitive that's now being layered onto everything else, what does it mean? How does it look? And is it satisfied by a seven you know, point checkbox? And in my opinion, and from being, you know, having a whole bunch of conversations, it really wasn't, it was missing something. So that's what got me into starting to pivot again into uh, trauma and trauma sensitivity. So as I started looking and thinking about these check boxes and whatnot, what I started to see was this story of trauma in schools. So the story of trauma in schools was five years ago, and I think still in a lot of ways is that trauma is something that students have for which teachers need to be prepared to deal with. And so we're going to professional development, the snot out of the teachers and then they are, they will be trauma sensitive. And it is such, it, it just sits so wrong in my heart and in my body, because first of all, if we acknowledge in Canada that at minimum 25% of every classroom it, of students in every classroom carries some kind of traumatic experience, the logical truth that 
at minimum 25% of teachers carry the same stories, right? That those kids become teachers. Sorry, what? We're not TeachBot 2020s yeah, anymore? Teach right? <laughs> right? We are not TeachBot. So um, let's yeah, let's jump into it. Sorry, Chris. Yeah, I, I, I just I just say like a lot of the words you're already sharing with us are really affecting me because, you know, I've always uh, I've always really struggled with you know people who tell me to drink a glass of water, uh, and tell me to use I, the word you know it's the new normal. I, I'm so as the person who has gone through the Fort McMurray floods, the Fort McMurray fires, all that stuff. Um, I've always really struggled when when someone comes in and, and says, "Okay, this is the new normal." Well, no, it's not. It's the same I was in. Just stuff has happened, and I got to deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I, already, I'm really connecting with some of the things you're saying, mm-hmm. and especially the narrative piece about it, um, because I've always believed that, yeah, there's the the umbrella term of trauma, but everyone's narrative is is their own story, and everyone's story is different, and we don't know who the characters are going to be and the important moments. And, and so I really am connecting with that. Um, and that's kind of how I've always wanted to do it. But as someone who, you know, hasn't done that research, I sometimes feel like you're saying, like I'm checking off boxes. Um, and I know, you know, at the end of the day, I'm almost conditioned to saying to myself, if I'm not feeling 100%, I say, oh, did I drink enough water? When that could be furthest, the furthest thing from what I actually need. Yeah. Yeah. So th- let's jump from there then, because that's a that's that's a great narrative we have into there. So what does it actually mean to have trauma-informed teaching? Okay, so I'm going to um, back us up just a little second, if that's okay. Absolutely, please. Go for it. Like, like we, we want the real deal here. We want the real yeah. deal here. <laughs> yeah, that's all you get with me. I'm sorry. No, that's I, good. I, no apologies. I, if I lie, I blush. This so is the unapologist podcast. The unapologist. Yeah, we don't apologize. Okay, <laughs> we're not apologists. So I, I think as an English teacher, I've always been very um, sensitive to you know the language and the terms and what we call things and how we label them. And so I have no issue with people who use trauma informed or trauma sensitive interchangeably. But I wanted to share a little bit um, about what I've come to learn or what I think um, for me works because I'm hoping that it'll spark a conversation for other people. So when often trauma-informed is connected really with the behavioral health services field. Okay, so with social services, justice, corrections, health. Um, and it has to do with understanding victimization, service delivery to clients, understanding the importance of safety and control in all of those aspects. And why I think the distinction is important is I've heard often in this work, teachers say to me, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do this um, on top of everything else. I don't know how I'm going to deliver trauma-informed practices. And I think where the distinction for me is, is if we move the conversation towards trauma sensitivity, it recognizes not only the difference in schools, we are not therapists as teachers and are not trained to be such and aren't expected to be such. And so trauma sensitivity for me anyways, kind of moves it out of the realm of the services offered and into the realm of experience. So if I'm trauma sensitive, I'm attentive to your experiences. I'm attentive to, and I'll go through what I think a trauma sensitive classroom looks like after, because I think, I, I assume that's a question you probably have. Oh, uh, completely. Um, 
But when we move it into the realm of trauma sensitivity, it becomes a way of being. So if I go back to my the school story of trauma, something that students have that teachers need to be prepared to deal with, right? That's kind of a trauma-informed practice. But if we move it into trauma-sensitive practices, then um, are you familiar with Nell Noddings and her ethic of care? Heard of the ethic. If you're not, read it. Yeah. Super good. Ethic of care. But Nell Noddings said she's always asked, like, how do I do this? How do I how do I practice an ethic of care on top of everything else? And she her answer is like it's never on top of everything else. An ethic of care is underneath everything. It's where we should start. And it's what everything else should build on. And if we work from that place, then everything else goes better. And I think there's a monumental shift there. Because then if we think about trauma sensitive practices or pedagogies in that way, it opens the space for teachers to be trauma sensitive for themselves, for each other, for the students, it becomes a whole school way of being that is it somehow feels different than here's a here's a pd and don't get me wrong i love me some checklists sometimes it's really <laughs> nice for someone to say like here's seven things you need to do natalie and don't think about it and you can but feel good when you check off the list yeah I, I love checking I off lists. Of, oh totally probably put a post-it note on it with a little smiley face for myself <laughs> right but it's the real work and this is what being alongside my co-inquirers and my research has shown me the real where it comes when we start opening up the spaces to being trauma sensitive to ourselves also and including teachers in that conversation and to each other so for me i'm going to move towards language of trauma sensitive you use language that you feel comfortable with but also it's a little bit less for me anyway clinical a little less medical it, it, like trauma-informed to me is like okay we're going to diagnose we're going to remediate we're going to fix and it's going to be gone and it, again it's sort of this intervention as opposed to a way of being and i like to situate myself more in the way of being and i think too um just if you look at the words informed and sensitive there's some kind of different mm -hmm. connotations I, I don't know and maybe this is just me but when i hear informed I hear like I need to be better. I need to become mm -hmm. informed. Mm -hmm. Whereas where I'm sensitive, it's just my like you said, it's a way of being. Yeah. And I and I think it's an important distinction in this conversation because what I came to understand from being alongside incredible co-researchers was they carried a lot of trauma stories. They were living and telling a lot of their own trauma stories that they felt had no couldn't even breathe in school each one of each one of them at some point or another in our research said independently like they weren't with each other they didn't know each other said i can't be human at school like what are we doing that's fascinating what are we doing they've said i have to walk to the door i have to check myself at the door and become something else as i walk into the door now that doesn't mean, and I want to say this very clearly, that I'm advocating, like, here's my heart and soul on a table, kid, and you're responsible for my well-being. That's not what I'm saying in any way, shape, or form. But if we're trauma-sensitive with ourselves, then we, we bump with some of those narratives of, like, good teacher that says a good teacher can handle everything all the time. A good teacher gets through all of the curriculum. A good teacher never takes a day off. A good teacher, right? We can interrupt some of those and give ourselves the space to breathe, to be human, to understand that this is very complex work that we do on a daily basis. 
right? So for me, that trauma sensitivity, that space that that word opens up or that shift opens up is really, really important for us as teacher people to then be able to be trauma sensitive with the incredible humans that are entrusted to our care every day. So we're really talking about bringing humanity back into teaching and humanity back in the classroom and recognizing Mm -hmm. that there's people at the center of any education system. Amazing. Like mind blowing. We, we teach humans, right? We spend lots of time with humans. We don't teach stuff. I, I I think back to Chris is tearing up right now, folks. Uh, well, <laughs> this is, this, no, because this is so personal. Like I I, I understand it. Well, I, I think back to uh, when I was teaching uh, social studies against uh, against the the wall from you, and I don't know if you remember this story, but I, I I was doing that that social studies program, and I came in like right before first report cards, and I was like, so I did unit one. <laughs> and you were like, and, and you said to me, "Yeah, that's okay. It's a really long one." <laughs> um, right, like just, we do. Yeah, you just you know some of the things you're telling, and it's kind of like you know, future you has done this research and has this this foundation now, but past you was living it anyway. Um, I, I tend to agree, and we didn't have the language back then. Like past no. me has been teaching for a long time. Past <laughs> me started teaching in two thousand and one, and in two thousand and one, <laughs> we weren't talking trauma, right? It wasn't a word on the landscape, which is interesting because I think there were a lot of people who are living very relationally at that time. But nine eleven was my fourth day of teaching. Wow! And oh, wow! Yeah! Yeah! And I was like, oh, before, like my first four days of teaching, I, she was planned. She was executed. Like I, I was teaching the content. I was going to be the best darn teacher you'd ever seen. I was going to, you know, lesson plan and then assess and all my students were going to have great marks because I, you know, taught them so well, whatever. And, and I was going to teach the same thing every year just because then I could get better and better and better. And then day four was 9-11. And it literally was like a sucker punch to the gut in a good way where I realized, wait a minute, I, I, I'm teaching people. I want to teach people stuff, sure. And we can have learning experiences together. But up until that moment, I honestly walked through the door every day as a teacher of stuff, of curriculum mm. outcomes from the former, formal curriculum. But in that, the, the two weeks after even, going, who cares about literary terms? I don't even care about literary terms anymore. I want to find out how do we live in this new world? How do we relate to each other? How do we make sure that the students who are Muslim in our school don't get victimized or marginalized right now? Like, that's what I care about. So I had, you're right, Chris, I think that's really apt. I had started living it fairly early on based on some pretty intense experiences that happened in my first couple of years, but didn't know what to call it or what it, what I was doing. Absolutely. It was there, but yeah. it hadn't been given a name yet. And, and yeah. so let's, let's bring this into the classroom now. Like I, I love mm-hmm. that we've not defined our terms. You've really elucidated the difference between the two. So how does this work? How does this play out in the classroom now? I go in tomorrow and <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I uh, sort of dumped that on you, like, but no, no, I really no, want to know now, like, how brilliant. do I, I don't, because one of the we issues, want to be practical, practical, yes, because one yeah. of the issues I wrestled with at the beginning of the year was I volunteered 
to teach completely remote this year. And one of the big stresses a lot of teachers had was, how do I translate what I do in the classroom online? How do I get through all the material? And the one question I was thinking of is actually in line with you. I'm like, well, does any of that really even matter? Like, if it's if we're only doing a course a month, the brain can't actually absorb that much information in that little time. So what do my students need and what can I give them? Uh, but let's let's talk to all the other teachers out there. Like, what, what can we give them? Like, to, in the classroom? Like, this is amazing what stuff you're talking about. Right now, too, right? Like... What do they need? And what I found in my classes this semester, we shaped a one-on-one -on -one online um, conversational space where we wrote back and forth to each other. And I wrote back and forth to each student individually. And that probably was because for me, it's all about those relationships and, and them knowing I'm there and me getting to know them and everything else is kind of secondary to that. Well, those one-on-one -on -one writing spaces are some of the most beautiful, mutually transformational experiences I've had that I wouldn't actually have had if we were face-to-face. -face. So if there's like a silver lining in a way, going to online instruction has made me much more intentional. You know, I've been teaching forever. I can walk into a class and huck off some English language arts, no problem. But when I have to do it online, I think, Peter, like you were saying, we have to be so intentional and so every class has taken me five, six times the amount of time to plan. And the things that we're doing are so intentionally shaped to foster community, to foster relationship, to foster connection. I think it was you had on a previous guest, uh, Dr. Sharp, I think, who said something about mental health and relationships and connectivity. You know, I have students telling me from this particular class that they have been in classes for four years with other students and they've never gotten to know them like they did in the, through this class. Who, like, who cares what else we do? If they've learned that we can create those kinds of spaces and the importance of that as B ed students and they take that into the field with them when they go and teach, thank you, you've done my job. Well, that, well, like, that's I a win. Can, that's a win. Huge. Yeah. Huge win. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> Trauma-sensitive pedagogy, to answer your question, that was a little bit of a, a rabbit hole, sorry. Hey, sometimes um, we got to follow it. We got to go. We got to go. So for me, it's all about what I will call relational ethics um, and everything that comes under the umbrella of relational ethics. So it's not just about relationships, but it's about coming to them in really ethical thoughtful, continuous ways, you know, like they don't end, sorry, I hope that wasn't super loud. They don't end when the semester ends. They don't end, you know, they don't end ever if the students don't want them to end really. Um, and so in, from my, my teaching life, I still get pictures of people's babies and, you know, weddings and things that are happening. And I hope with, with these BED students, I, you know, we continue to be in contact, but I think it, so I have a few things. I wrote down a couple of jot notes just to make sure that I, I really was able to offer something practical because a lot of times, you know, when we're talking about research and whatever, it feels up here and it feels kind of theoretical. So, so bringing it to the real and to what can we do tomorrow if we want, right? So that relational ethics is the umbrella. One of the little prongs in the umbrella is acknowledging the wholeness of lives in the making, first of all, that these are human beings, that I'm a human being, that we spend a lot of time together, but that life sometimes is hard. 
So if my grade 11s are, you know, doing inventory at Walmart until 3 a.m. and they're still getting their butts to class at 8.30, but they need a granola bar and a coffee and maybe like 10 minutes to take a breath, that's a-okay. Because if we don't attend to the wholeness of lives, then then the inspiration to be attracted to any kind of content, really, I just don't think is, is there. Well, I've always said that... Um... You know, if you take, you know, 60 minutes to make sure every heart in the room has joy in it, mm -hmm. you'll get mm -hmm. through in that last 20 minutes what you would have done in 90. Absolutely. And it's not a soul suck, right? Like, that's the other piece. Like, it's, it, it becomes an engagement and a way of being together as opposed to something we have to do because some provincial document says we have to do it. And that's sort of my second piece. And I think my second piece is enacting different understandings of curriculum. So like Ted Aoki talks about curriculum as plan, which is what we, we do as teachers in terms of taking outcomes and indicators and shaping them and satisfying our professional responsibilities. But then there's the curriculum as lived, which is everything else that happens, right? In a classroom, it's everything, all the interactions, all the teacher eyes and behavior management and curbing and shaping and thinking and critical engagement. And too often, and even my BED students now have said, you know, a lot of our teachers in high school said, well, we have to do it because it's in the curriculum. Not good enough. I think if we are, if we are living in trauma-sensitive ways, we think with different understandings of curriculum. Another, another understanding out there is by Clennon and Connolly, and they call it a curriculum of lives. And it's what happens in the dynamic interactions between teacher-student uh, content and milieu. And why I love the addition of milieu is because it opens up the space for land-based learning. It opens up the space for familial curriculum making for all those things that happen inside of school to have breathing room inside of school. So I think that's really important to not negate the mandated outcomes, it is our professional responsibility, but to decenter them, to take them away as being the sole focus of why we do things. Um, and, and just to jump in on, on that as well, you know, Chris, back in our first episode, we had someone comment on that to say that even curriculum that is written is written with a bias in it and a plan in mind. And so I love the idea that, you know, let's just you know, detach ourselves a bit and see what's really, and center ourselves and what really matters. So I, I love what you just said there. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's, I think it's really, really, really important. And I think when we think about, you know, hopefully many people's desires to be anti-racist and anti-oppressive educators, you know, curriculum is written in particular ways by particular groups of people, the, the mandated outcomes uh, with particular purposes, without a doubt. And a lot of times it's sold as, you know, shaping good citizens or even maybe even more attention filled shaping productive citizens. And we don't question what does citizenship mean and why productive? And in a Marxian way, what does that what does that make us think about? And are we? Yeah. Anyways, another rabbit hole because I find this stuff fascinating. But and to me too, 
it keeps coming back. Every every kind of uh, trail we've come keeps coming back to that human component. Yes. That the students are human beings. The teachers mm-hmm. are human beings. The admin are human beings. We are Absolutely. human beings operating with a certain set of goals that we have. And it's really looking at what are, what's our hierarchy of goals. 100%. And I think the... I, Chris, you and I, like literally, we're just like, here's the volley. You just, yeah, <laughs> you send it back. I'll just send it back to you. Um, so the fundamental precept for me in my trauma sensitivity pedagogy is safety. It's safety of students. So it is that human side to be who they are as people, to have days where things just don't jive. They are not automatons or learning robots. We're not teacher bots. There are days it works, there are days it isn't. And when you talk about safety, it's safety in all ways, right? So safety to be who you are. It's safety to explore, to take risks, to not feel like you're going to uh, be put on the spot or ridiculed for doing something wrong. But really, if you think about grounding your pedagogy in safety, it's safety to explore, to self-express, to be, to breathe, to all those things. Then we start thinking about things like that we do in school with good intention, like coding, right? So, So we code behaviors and students become or have numbers associated with them that explain their behaviors, right? So if you have someone who's oppositional defiant and whatever the code in that province is for that. And what that does is it decreases the safety because it doesn't allow space for that human behaviors to be understood as something much more complex. I'm gonna give you a super amazing, super short little example that I heard. There was this young man who was um, at a school in Edmonton, and he was uh, coded as oppositional defiant and as completely disengaged. And so he had his IPP, you know, things were done to try to support him, but he was completely, completely disengaged. And so his parents were, were really kind of bothered and wanted to get to the bottom of it. And so they started taking him to, to, for some counseling. And over time, what became, came to the fore was that that family had had a very traumatic experience. Their doorbell had rung. They'd opened the door. These masked people had come in, tied them up, held them at gunpoint. Um, and it turned out that they, the, the masked humans were in the wrong house. They thought they were coming to a drug house, but they weren't. They were at this house. Next step to this story is that it turns out that the school bell, like the class change bell, sounded exactly like his doorbell. So every, like, eight times a day, this kid was in freeze and flight, right? So if you think about your trauma responses, fight, flight, and freeze. goodness. Eight times a day. And so... You know, I think when we think about trauma-sensitive pedagogies and building spaces and opening places, part of it is that is understanding that sometimes behaviors have a lot more to them as happening from and are shaped in outside of school lives. And that part of our, our job is to think past that, that coding number and to make our spaces safe for kids, almost despite or regardless of their behaviors, right? Now, okay, yeah, if there's sure. other people mm-hmm. at risk and whatever, of course there's limits, but for me, that's, that's a big part of my pedagogy that 
if you're acting like a jerk, I, I actually want to figure out why instead of assuming you're a jerk. And going back to that ethic of care, I actually care yeah. about why this yeah, is happening. I actually care. Um, and, and, and I think that's that's a distinction. I think on this podcast, we've talked a lot about like the difference between actually caring and mm-hmm. and, <laughs> I, and, and saying Checking I Checking the boxes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, that's heavy. That's heavy stuff. Um, but I think it's real stuff. I think it's real stuff because, you know, th- these young people come into our classes and we have no idea what's in the bag. No, and no. just to get it's them to so open up crazy. to you as well, you know that that's mm-hmm. a that's not an instant process either. Okay, we're gonna no. do this seven things to do tomorrow, and hey, we we we're done, right? Mm-hmm. The checkbox. Well, that's about. my my B Ed students were asking that actually. They're like, okay, so Natalie, <laughs> I want to be relational. I want to be anti-racist. I want to be anti-oppressive. Like, and I want to like start in a good way. How do I do it? And I was like, well, first of all, you don't want to be, you are like, if you are saying that you want to be, you're already on that path. Right. But a lot of this is slow. Like it isn't, you can't be like, Hey, I'm going to be your BFF on day one. They're going to not respond well. Right. You have to really shape the openings in the space. So I kind of gave them the example with the writing back and forth that we do. I said, if I had said to you, hey, tell me your deepest and darkest secrets (laughs) on the first day, (laughs) you would have left the class. On, uh, right? Please, please give me a list of your t top three fears and your address. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> <laughs> they would quit, and so that's not safe, right? So I keep coming back to this word because I think sometimes we throw it around a little bit, but I think it actually is foundational to a trauma sensitive pedagogy. So then, what can we as teachers do at this point? to be sensitive to ourselves and what kind of practices can we take? Because if we aren't even willing to dive or dip into the waters for ourselves, how can we offer that to students? So uh, what, what, are, what, what are some things we could do in that regard? And to jump in there, cause I think we definitely have it. I had shared, um, I had shared a story on one of our episodes Um where I really struggled at the start of this year, not with being a teacher, not with creating safe spaces, not with doing the things I know I'm good at, but all of my students' faces were three quarters uh, covered with the mask. And I felt like I wasn't connecting because I couldn't see the face. And I really went into kind of like, not not a dark period, but a period of self-doubt that was real. Mm -hmm. And it is, and and it's... Oh, hard. But I think like, I think like that there's trauma and I think Mm -hmm. sometimes we're so, so concerned about being, and I'm going to use the word sensitive now, Mm -hmm. being sensitive to the trauma in the room that we're Mm -hmm. not necessarily sensitive to the trauma in our hearts. I agree too. And I think that there's people who may listen, who might go, come on. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to I'm going to take a little step sideways for a second and share a little bit of my awakening in terms of trauma. When I started this whole thing, I was a little bit worried about, you know, having to identify types of trauma, like big T traumas. People are ready to understand. Right. Big T traumas. You have the fire. Obviously, there's there's 
fallout from that. You know, there's an earthquake, there's a, a war. Like people are willing, are more willing now to accept sort of big T traumas, but I, it felt very incomplete to me. And so I started thinking about um, experience again. I always come back to experience. So I was thinking about the Boston Marathon bombing, right? That happened in 2006. No, 2013, sorry, 2013. And I was thinking about that and thinking about how, you know, after the Boston Marathon bombing, some people laced their runners and ran the next marathon the next weekend. And some people have never run again, right? Mm -hmm. And so what is it? It's not the event that caused the trauma. It's how the person experienced the event. So the event itself, bad but how someone encodes that or embodies that is what shaped it as um traumatic or not so i started moving towards like small t trauma but i don't really like that distinction because i don't want it to be a hierarchy of traumas i don't ever want to suggest how you experience whatever you're experiencing can be very traumatic it's about how it becomes kind of embodied and how you live with it in your body and so for some people, certain things, the same event will become traumatic. And for some people, uh, the same experience won't, right? Which is really, really interesting. But if you open up that space, then Chris, what you went through for sure was embodied in you in a real, real way. Absolutely. And so it's okay to acknowledge that for sure as a trauma you know, and to, and to think with, okay, well, what, what can we do then with that kind of stuff? How do we be trauma sensitive to ourselves as people who teach? So this is the first thing I, um, my students are always like, why, why do you say people who teach? And I say, because I'm a whole person who teaches, right? And I think that these minor shifts and how we say things really, really start moving the conversation in different directions. So as a person who teaches, um, I had to really start thinking about what, uh, what scripts, what stories did I live up to and in? And I really, really lived up to and in pretty powerful and dominant stories of what a good teacher is for a really long time. And it was detrimental to my mental health because I felt like I couldn't get there. Right. Once I started letting go of comparing myself to those scripts or, or measuring myself by them, I was able to just that open the door to being tra more trauma sensitive to myself. But the biggest thing that came out of my research um, that I think is so hopeful and so exciting for people who teach, uh, but also people at large is that oftentimes people's trauma stories become the sum total of their identity. And I'm going to use with permission, the example of one of my co-inquirers, when I first met him, he storied his life as BT and AT before trauma and after trauma. And his and that's and that's how he shared his experience with me. The trauma experience that he had, which was a well, actually I'll back up and I think Chris, if I remember, you played hockey, right? I did, yes. He was he was um uh, quite a he was a hockey player on the way to the NHL. Like he was very, very good and, and played at whatever league level. I don't want to give too much away uh, to protect his anonymity. And um, he had a cliff jumping accident and he stood to lose both of his legs. And so he storied his accident 
as the central focus of his life. That was his identity. Everything that happened before that was before trauma. Everything that happened after that was after trauma. And because my research was a narrative inquiry, which is a really, really cool methodology. I won't go into what it all means here, but oh, it's- You, you really have two full-on subscribers to narrative nice. method. Uh, we get into yeah. it every week. It's big, all big oh. time. Yeah, we, we oh. are narrative all the, that's through all, all of our work. It's been through that. Isn't that awesome when you oh, see it, those threads? Oh, that's why we pat each other on the back so much. <laughs> well, you deserve to, you deserve to. But we started thinking with, his his stories like that happened before you know his familial stories his school stories his uh friendship stories things like that and we started thinking about what had happened or thinking with his stories of what had happened after the accident what we came to see is by thinking across the wholeness of his life in the, in the making we came to understand how who he was was shaped yes by the accident but his experiences of the accident was shaped by all of his early life experience too. And so there was this continuity of understanding the wholeness of his life in the making that allowed him or that, that opened the space for him to decenter the accident. And so it was fascinating because over our year and a half together, um, Humboldt happened the Humboldt bus crash happened and I actually saw him a few days after and he walked in limping and I was like, Oh my gosh, what did you do? He's like, I've done nothing. My body is telling me I'm not okay. Like I've literally, I haven't even gone to the gym. I'm limping because I am triggered and I'm not okay. Right. And so that happened. And then long story short, as we move sort of forward, thinking across the wholeness of his life in the making, by the end of our, our recorded time together, because we're still in communication, he was able to say, you know, like, no, I'm a hockey player teacher. Like I, my hockey career didn't end then, which is how, when we started, he had storied it. Right. So I think that one one thing that we as people who teach can do for ourselves is if we have some an experience that we story as traumatic is to think about well what if i move backwards into my life like what is shaping that right now right what is either helping it and supporting it or what's hurting it and where is it going to take me and so by decentralizing it it foregrounds a life and not a traumatic experience that was a huge awakening um in in that came out of the research the other thing that uh i think we need to be careful of is that there's a lot of um quick fixes out there if you if you read like oh do yoga and meditate, i have nothing against meditate yoga meditate. breathe drink water right <laughs> Do finger breathing, drink your glass of water and, and all things pulled together as long as it supports sort of that awakening to yourself and thinking across your life in the making is, is fine, but in and of itself is not going to support us being trauma sensitive to ourselves. Do you know what I mean? Like me just doing yoga just makes me mad because I can't do it and I'm not flexible. So it's not, it's, she's not helping. And so, yeah, it's, it's going to make you more angry. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing I think as people who teach and what we can do or gift to ourselves is an understanding that 
in a Western sort of medical model, there's this mind-body duality, right? We place a lot of value, particularly in education, on the mind and the mind being able to tame and control the body. And I think that that is, it sets up another dominant story that is a bit dangerous in terms of people who are living um, with trauma stories that, that shapes their living and their struggles as a weakness because their brains aren't strong enough to get over it. All those words that you hear, you know, oh, they're doing so well, they're not crying anymore. Come on, right? We, we I think, need to gift ourselves with the knowledge that sometimes our bodies call attention to stuff we have to pay attention to um, in, in ways that in our sort of Western medical models, we're not usually allowed to acknowledge. So, um, the one co-inquirer's limp, for example, um, another co-inquirer, she, she experienced a devastating fire and she would be in her classroom and her classroom would be filling up with smoke, which it wasn't, but she, her body was telling her something, right? And, and so sometimes I think if we're not paying attention, our bodies will let us know a little bit. Um, and and working towards reclaiming, of course, that that kind of sense of our wholeness. Now, a narrative conceptualization of trauma situates trauma in the midst, right? In the midst of who we are, who we are becoming, and kind of our past, presence, and futures, which is really lovely because again, it takes away the the responsibility and the focus on just that traumatic moment as the sole marker of who you are. And there's a freedom in that. Um, and so actually, I feel like I've talked for a really, really long time. Hey, and I'm hoping that... It's really good. Like Just the idea that you have to back up and look at the entirety of the story. It was just mm -hmm. mind-blowing. I'm sitting here going, I'm I, expressionless, speechless, because that is a complete game-changer. It's a paradigm shift in thinking of that the event no it's we, the lead up and everything yeah we think of our lives in this line and there's oh, there's the dot of that moment there's the dot there's the dot there's the dot and that's made me who i am over here but our really our thinking needs to be that it's not a line it's a circle we're oh, in the center of what's yes. happening yes and okay so now you're giving me goosebumps because now i can share something else that i think is really cool so the idea like the a lot of our work challenged sort of the idea of time as as linear which is also a very western sort of dominant understanding of time right um and so we were talking at one point uh, with with the co-inquirer with the limp um about the word trigger Okay, so we're back to thinking with words, right? And trigger is the word on the landscape. That's what people call it. Oh, I'm Absolute, triggered right yeah, now. Sure, or this yeah. Is triggering. Oh, yeah, completely. But it makes me think of guns. And I don't like guns. Like when I think of trigger, that's what I think of, right? Like it's like a, a shooting. That, that's just what it draws out in me. And so we started talking about how do we, how do we think with an, narratively with this experience and name it something that isn't quite again so like I'm triggered, therefore I will behave like this. And so with this co-inquirer, we came up with the word enfolding. Because what he said is in this moment right now, I am 22-year-old me and I am 27-year-old me at the same time. And that's what my body's telling me. There is no elapsed time between my accident and what it's bringing up in my body right now and so he he called it an infolding and i thought how beautiful 
-hmm. How beautiful mm -hmm. of a conception is that? Because it helps, it helps, I think, people who have never had that experience understand differently than the word trigger does. And being able to put in a, a name that works to something allows us to say, this is what's happening. And that mm -hmm. I think that I think that can bring us to a place of calm or at least some acceptance of knowing what's what's happening. Absolutely. And that it's and that it is like okay. You know, it's again not a control thing. You cannot use your mind right now to to convince yourself out of what you're experiencing right now. Like if he wanted to stop limping, he couldn't. Right. And that was frustrating to him. I will admit he was a little bit like, listen, I've spent seven years working on myself to get over this, which is very common language. And he's like, in most days I do pretty well, but right now I'm infolded. And, and I'm just kind of getting some uh, veto. I'm getting some big vibes right now um, because, <laughs> because that's what we call them when I have a moment. Um, because it. you were talking about this idea of, of infolding. And then when we want to be trauma sensitive as teachers, so often, whoops, hit my mic, sorry. Uh, so <laughs> often we, um, when we notice that there is maybe um, some trauma in the classroom with a student or ourselves or a colleague, we think, I think we think kind of twofold things. Number one, very often we think there's a problem. And number two, we think I need to fix the problem when, when number one, calling it something, a problem is, is, is incorrect. That's an incorrect way of looking at it. Cause it's not a problem. It's perhaps some trauma, which we need to be sensitive about. And number two, we want that control so bad that we start to get the blinders on and it's fix the problem because I can't get to the next thing if I don't fix the problem. And it's amazing because a lot of teachers are control freaky, right? We do like to fix. That's, that's a, well, a lot of people who teach are. You know, all like of that. us do our own different thing on the whiteboard for how we'll leave homework. Or, you know, everyone's got their own thing and it's their thing. And, and like, oh, there was, there was someone in my class and the desks got moved. And, and, you know, and, but we are. I completely agree that we are. Yeah. But that language yeah, really makes me think yeah. that there, there's a, we, we can make a change towards trauma sensitivity by even being aware of stepping into it like that. I think you're correct. Very much so. And I think too, something that I didn't realize, and I'm going to foreground what I'm going to say next, Beth, what I'm going to say may be infolding or triggering for some people who may be listening. So if someone wants to kind of shut off right now, what I'm going to say may actually be hard to hear, but, um, I had this, uh, I was teaching um, a grade 11, a grade 12 class, sorry, and um, there was this wonderful human, just gregarious, always smiling, always had a joke. I didn't teach him, but I taught all of his best friends and, and hockey team were, were in the class that I was teaching. And, um, and he, he committed suicide one night, uh, very much by, to the shock of everybody, of course. Right. And, and it was incredibly, uh, it, the surprise factor of it even was so, so even made it compounded it more in terms of how we, we experienced it and, and embodied it. But I had these faces in front of me with, with all of his best friends and it was grade 12 English and typically in grade 12 English. And what was coming up was 
Hamlet and Death of a Salesman. Mm-hmm. And I had never, ever in my life, like in my teaching career up to that point, which was seven years, stopped to think about what even the resources we use, what that might shape for students. You know, we teach Hamlet, we teach Hamlet. Like that's what we do. That the books are in the book room. That's what we do, right? But I never until and re- and realizing at that moment, I couldn't, I couldn't go on with my my year plan and had to re revamp and shift and move. Right, it was such a powerful awakening to me. I think in terms of being trauma sensitive, without having the words yet at that point in time, also. And so hard to realize that I might have been complicit in harming students in some ways where they feel silenced because they don't feel like they have agency to say, Miss, I can't do this right now because it's Hamlet and we do Hamlet and that's what we do because it's English and it's great, right? And so, so that interaction and knowing that I'd gone for seven years of being kind of unawake was was... It lives in me. I think you can see it on my face. Yeah. Uh, it lives in me mm-hmm. still, right? And I carry that with me every time I make a decision. So I think uh, these awakenings are really important, have been really important in my journey to being trauma sensitive, for sure. Wow. This is incredible. I really appreciate you sharing that, especially with us here and for all our listeners out there. I really want to thank you for bringing that thank forward you. and to sharing your vulnerability in that moment as well. I know Chris and I were. Well, it hits you. It hits you. And I think, you know, just based on our conversation tonight, you know, and I've shared some things and you've shared some things, Vito's shared some things. It seems as though that's an important step to that sensitivity is that sharing component, you know, because we don't know. We, you know, that's the one thing I've learned through being a teacher is mm-hmm. I don't what I don't know. It could fill many libraries, and yet what I do know could fill a duotang. Um, and can we can we add a little hopeful, forward-looking story? Yes, absolutely, yes, absolutely. Uh, because I live in a space of you know being at a child trauma research center. It often there's a lot of heavy, and I always try to hold on to um, something really positive in terms of a forward-looking story and it comes back actually to the Fort McMurray fires and I don't know if you feel this way Chris but one of your colleagues does so um, after so the school went back in September and December January I spoke to a friend of mine and I said you know what's the best PD you've had because you know I'm, I'm doing this work now and I'm all fired up about trauma <laughs> which is totally the wrong language and I apologize fired right up. away I use fire fired and up. trauma yeah, uh, that's <laughs> it folks we're heading <laughs> yeah I'm done we've been the unapologists right? <laughs> I, I did apologize I will full on admit that how like right I, I was not practicing a lot of the stuff that I've learned since but anyways so I asked her what, what the best PD she had had. And she said, and this is one opinion, but I'm hoping it can help shape others. Uh, she said, you know, we've had a lot of people come in and tell us how to be trauma-informed. Uh, and a lot of PD telling us what we should be doing or what we shouldn't be doing by people who weren't here and didn't experience the fire and don't know what we do on a daily basis. She said that for me, the best PD was when they took our staff 
they sat us in circles of eight and they asked us to share our fire stories. She said, for me, that was the moment. Just like when you think about how revolutionary that is for us in a system of education and what that can do, granted, I'm sure it made some people uncomfortable, but it also probably supported a lot of people. That's my hopeful forward-looking story. Um, thank you for that. Um, it, it really brought some things up. You know, I was there. I evacuated. And uh, I think everybody has a story from that time. And, uh, you know, I, I'm like everybody else, and I'm, I'm happy to share it. Um, and I, feel, I feel like this, that what we do here with, with, with Vito and I and with you tonight is, is a safe and a positive thing. Um, you know, I'm standing there on my front porch, and there's smoke everywhere. And I have my three-week-old baby in my hand, and uh, I baptized him myself because I didn't know what was going to happen. And, um, you know, you talk tonight about, you know, the line of our life, and we pin it. And for so long, that was my pin. Mm. The fact that I had to baptize my own little boy because I didn't know if we were going to live. And that, um, you know, that, that, that was, uh, that was my, my, my thorn that I took with mm -hmm. me in all things. Um, but, you know, when we start to change that thinking to the circle, to the whole, um, it's now a triumph story. A trauma mm -hmm. story has become a triumph story. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, how amazing is it that on that little boy's baptismal certificate, it has his dad's name? You know, because his dad loved him so much that so much. that changed the story from the trauma to the triumph. And that's one of the things mm -hmm. I'm hearing about tonight is, yeah, trauma sensitivity is a huge, huge... It's, 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 it's Mount Everest times a million. But... <laughs> but in that grind, in that trauma, we can, you know, what I'm hearing from you tonight is we can turn it into triumph while still honoring that it, that it is there mm -hmm. and that it's a thing. Mm -hmm. Completely. And, and it is. And just think that decision too was shaped by a whole life that you'd lived up to that point. Right. Mm -hmm. And the, the beauty the horror in that moment was shaped by a lot of beautiful things in your life making up to that point too. And, and you can share that with him as he gets older and, and how that reverberates across his life. Like it, this idea of sort of the continuity of experience is really pretty exciting when you start thinking about it in these ways. And it does, it, it supports in some ways, not to negate that things are difficult. We live very difficult lives but it supports us to think across. And that's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that here. Thank you for all the sharing you've done tonight. And hey, Vito. It's my favorite you know time, time of the week. My you know favorite time, time of the week. I know, it it's my favorite. favorite time. It is the Polson Points time. Polson Points. We have been talking oh, with Dr. Natalie Miller Reed tonight. Uh, she's awesome. Uh, if you're still with us listening, you know she's awesome. I got to share a wall with her, so I knew she was awesome. Back when uh, back when her class was like 25% desk and kid area, 75% stuff that like just inspired kids area. And here's I'm gonna drop it like it's hot tonight because I have been I have been like writing a novel over here. Um 
Hey, number one Polson point for tonight. Never forget that we teach humans. We teach humans and we are humans. And how those humans experience things is valid for each and every one of them, including you who's listening right now. Doesn't matter what that experience was, how you experience is what matters. Relational ethics are key. Relational, uh, excuse me, relational ethics are key. Um, and in that, we come to our relationships in thoughtful, meaningful, ethical ways that don't have to end. Um, and 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 one of the things that's so important in our practice, in our practice as as teaching people and as trauma sensitive teaching people, is acknowledging that the wholeness of lives in the making. Um, and I think one of the things that I jumped off of that too is that. I'm I'm 34 years old and I'm still a life in the making. So it's not just these these young people, but it's it's everyone. Um, safety, you know, safety is foundational. Um, and and uh, let me just jump on because I have uh, I, I made a very important final couple here. If you know what you want, go for it. So often we have people who say, "I fell into teaching. It was an accident." You know what you wanted. Go for it if you know. Um, and find meaning where it presents itself. You know, if we don't have the answers, get looking. And this is my favorite uh, Natalie Reed point. And I think this kind of was a, a, a line throughout the whole thing. Don't ever be afraid to pivot. Mm. I Ever. I think that is a just a brilliant point to end off with because if I speak anymore, I will just ruin this moment. So, Dr. Natalie Miller Reed, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. We really, really appreciate not only the research that you've done, the work that you've done, but just the nuggets and the pearls of wisdom you've shared with us in this brief time we've had together tonight on this podcast. So, thank you so much for being here with us. It was a Thank roller coaster ride, me. but it's it a good a one. Yes. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> it, really it went, it went that's everywhere. Right. And that's what we love. And you know what, Chris? Next week, we're back on tap and we're bringing back Michael Hurd to talk about living on another plane of existence. Oh, because, I'm looking forward to talking to him. Because sometimes, you know what? We just got to be above the world and uh, beyond it. So uh, Michael's going to come back to, to talk to us about that. And thank you for joining us on the Unapologist podcast this week. Join us next week when we'll talk with great people, learn new ideas, and tell the story of teaching as it happens. This is Vito and Chris signing off. Podcast.